This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here at Worth Recovery, the founder of Worth Recovery, and I'm also a sex addict. And I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. I'm excited to be back with you today. This is episode 48, and it's the second part of our series on big emotions with John Taylor. We're going to pick back up with our interview of John in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I wanted to thank all of you that showed up this last weekend at our first Worth Recovery event. We had a really successful event this last weekend, and I'm so excited about the many people that we met, the many connections that were made, and the wonderful information and knowledge that we gained listening and learning from these therapists that were there. I'm grateful for your support. I'm grateful to have met so many of you, and I'm grateful for just the wonderful people that you are and how influential you are in my own recovery. Recently, I had someone tell me that when they entered recovery, they knew they had a hole in their heart. They just didn't really know how big it was. They didn't know that they needed a whole fellowship to fill up that hole in their heart. And I feel that way so much. I feel like just being, I feel like getting into recovery, I didn't understand the immense amount of connections that I needed in my life. And I'm just grateful for all of you and for the wonderful opportunities that we have to learn from each other and to spend time together. I'm also super excited and grateful to announce our next Worth Recovery event. This event will be in my current hometown of Salt Lake City, Utah, and it will be on January 21st, 2017. Now, I know that maybe seems like a long ways away, but it's only five months. Five months away, we'll be able to get together uh, connect, get to know each other. I'm excited. We're putting up the final touches on our lineup and we'll announce that soon for our speakers and guests. But put that on your calendars. January 21st of 2017 will be our next Worth Recovery event. I also today, before we get started, want to give a big shout out to our Worth Warriors. Thank you so much for your continued support. It's because of your support that this podcast remains free for all women in sex addiction throughout the world. Our audience continues to grow. I'm just so humbled by the number of people who find value in my experiences and what I have to say and those guests that we bring on. I'm so excited. I'm also excited about the continuing guest lineup that we have in the next few months. We were able to do lots of different, meet with lots of different people and be able to talk to so many different people. So I'm excited about what's coming up. Now, Without any further ado, let's jump into the second part of our episodes about big emotions with John Taylor. Real quick, John is a licensed social worker, has a master's degree in social work, also a CSAT therapist, and a CMAT therapist. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Yep. So CSAT being a sexual um, certified sexual addiction therapist, and CMAT being a certified multiple addiction therapist, correct? Yes. Okay. That's it. Awesome. So welcome back. We're going to uh, continue our discussion today with John Taylor about emotions. In our last episode... We kind of talked about that, what emotions are, how they come into our lives, 
after we stop acting out. I loved what John said that the Alcoholics Anonymous says that the best part of recovery is that emotions come back. And the worst part of recovery is that emotions come back. So now that we have these emotions, we talked about some of the core emotions that we feel, shame, anger, loneliness, overwhelming sadness, anxiety, fear. And we've learned that we can't really fix those, that they're going to come. So John, now what do we do with them when they come? How are we going to deal with them? They've been so overwhelming in the past. So let's talk first about what to do in the body, because I think if you're going to be engaged in a battle between your body and your brain, your body will always win. <laughs> okay. um, so let's get, Good engaged, to know. <laughs> let's get engaged with the body first, and then uh, maybe let's talk about some of the ways that long-term we can shift our thinking around emotions. So first in the body, um, the way that we shift emotion, I go back to what I said in the last episode, there's not a way to fix it. There's not a way to get over it really the strategy here is breathing through it. Um, Last summer we had my kids in swim lessons and we put my two-year-old in a swim lesson. I thought it was going to be like playing in the shallow end of the pool, Mm -hmm. like maybe blowing bubbles. I didn't know that there was an actual goal for this. And the the swimming instructor said, our goal for these kids is to get them to a point that they, uh, if they are to fall in the pool, they understand that they can jump off the bottom grab a lung full of air and go back under and they can continue that process until somebody comes to help them. Wow. That's Um, intense for a two-year-old. Yeah. Mine couldn't do it um, (laughs) because he just wanted to jump off the edge of the pool into my arms and wanted Mm. to do nothing the instructor said. Mm. But um, apparently some two-year-olds can do this. Um, I think that's a really good metaphor for how we start thinking about dealing with emotions. I Mm. really like the concept of grounding Um, Now, you've probably heard of grounding before. You've probably heard the vocabulary thrown around. I think one of the biggest myths that people run into this is that grounding means I make the emotion go away. Again, keep in mind, you can't make it go away. Grounding is really about distraction. Um, And distraction is so important in these intense emotions. When we're grounding, we're distracting from the intensity of the emotion so that we can understand what the emotion is telling us. Um, So some really simple grounding practices are things like count how many squares you see in the room. You're giving your mind something to work on that's right in front of you in that present moment. Mine is ceiling tiles. Okay. I count ceiling tiles and I sometimes, because I'm a mathematician, you guys all know that, I will make a formula for how many ceiling tiles there are based on one row. Nice. Yeah. Awesome strategy (laughs) for grounding. Um, I am not mathematically inclined. That's why I became a social worker. Um, I'm a little more visually inclined. I like to count textures, look at different hues of colors, look Mm -hmm. at different shapes, just getting observant about the present moment. I think it's really important when you're grounding, do not close your eyes um, because that takes you out of the present moment. Mm. Um, And that can even, that can intensify some of the intense emotions. Like if you're having some flashback type stuff, try to stay in the present moment. Um, So really quickly though, like, we talk about distraction as a grounding technique, but wasn't addiction just a distraction? You know, and I, and I think you're, you're right about that. I think addiction is a distraction technique that we are not mindful of. Okay. We're heading into it because we're running like crazy from this giant emotion or the situation that's going to squash us. I think there's a really big difference between sitting down and watching six hours of Netflix. Not that I've ever done that. Ever? No, well, I, I do it quite a bit. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think there's a big difference between sitting down and losing six hours and saying, I'm going to spend some time with this story that I'm really involved in. Um, almost identical behavior, the intention behind it is very different. 
when we're practicing grounding, we're not saying, gosh, I got to run from this. I hope it never comes. We're saying, this is big. I just went under. I'm going to jump up and grab a breath of air because I'm about to go under again. So we're actually really involved in the emotional process. We're just not taking the emotion by the horns and trying to wrestle it to the ground, which yeah. I think is the fantasy and addiction that I can make this go away if I act out or I can make this go away if I get a hit or get somebody else in my power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that distinction between like uh, being mindfulness about the activity can drastically change the outcome of the activity, right? Because I've sat down and lost three, four hours to TV. And I've done it, I think, both ways. I've done it where I'm like, I I need, I just need to run from whatever mm-hmm. it is that I'm feeling. And then at the end of that three, four hours, I'm sitting down, I feel shame about it. I feel mm-hmm. shame that I spent that much time, that I lost those hours, that nothing productive came out of it. Mm-hmm. But I've also had the other experience where I'm overwhelmed by what's going on in my emotions. And so I mindfully decide to watch a movie and take some time to just sit. Mm-hmm. And and I don't feel shame on the other end. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think shame would be an indicator or something we could do? Because I think it's hard to find that, that line or that balance between what's distraction and what's addictive behavior of yeah. some sort. And, and I think it's tough using shame as an indicator because... Um, inherently you're probably gonna have some guilt over taking care of yourself so carving out that time to say i've gotta i've gotta get a movie in or i'm just i need a break you might feel guilt over that i I think you've also i think you've also got to look at um are there unintended consequences after this Mm. can i see the movie can i have the experience and then can i get up and move on from it or um, I had this experience a little while ago. I was uh, I, I get anxious occasionally about work um, and about different things. And I was up at 2 a.m. one morning. I'm downstairs watching this really intense TV show. And my wife comes down the stairs and she said, what is the deal? Like, why are you out of bed? And I said, I'm really anxious. And she said, this is not the TV that you watch when you're anxious. Like, <laughs> it was this spy drama, like really paranoid people. And um, <laughs> Just add to your anxiety. Right. And I... I, I I checked in my body that moment and was like, oh, wow, like I'm really wound up and this isn't the anxiety wound up. This is the TV show wound up. Mm. Um, and so I think looking at are there after effects of what you're engaging in and are those after, after effects helpful or hurtful to what you're trying to accomplish? But I, I think shame can be an okay place to start. You've just got to be able to distinguish why am I feeling it? Is this pre-programmed shame or is this some of the guilt like I, I know better, I could have made a better choice? Right. Yeah, but I like what you said about looking at consequences. I think that would probably be a better mm-hmm. indicator of whether they're un- unintended or not, yeah. right? But look at what does what's the result of this? Will I be able to get up and move on? Or am I going to just watch another six hours yeah. because I feel so bad yeah. about what just happened? Well, and I, I think that's really the key um, in the research that's been done around how long it takes the body to calm down. If you're in something really intense, a 20 minute time frame is a good window to start with. Take 20 minutes, do something gentle, do something quiet, and then check back in. Is my body calm? Am I in contact with myself? If you're not, do another 20 minutes and check in with yourself at those intervals. I think that checking back in with yourself is so important. Mm. And one of the distinctions between what's addictive and what's healthy. In addiction, we're not checking back in to say, how am I feeling? We're saying, I'm just glad that thing's in my rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's important to circle back and, and check in again. Okay. Um, I think is another part of that, and this is counterintuitive for a lot of people, we do our best grounding in the presence of another person. 
Um, there's something about those mirror neurons, especially um, with a calm person, uh, something about those mirror neurons that enhances what you're doing. Um, and for a lot of people initially dealing with intense emotions, that can be hard for them. If you've had good experiences with your sponsor where you have been expressing tough emotions and they sat there with you and that was healing, draw on that and look for people in your support and recovery circles that you can go to with the intense emotions because they have a calming effect on you or they have a grounding effect on you mm -hmm. and that'll enhance what you're doing. Um, I think it's also like with most things in life, for me it's this way with exercise, if it's not something I like, I'm not going to go back and do it. Um, you can get so creative with grounding. So find things that you like. Experiment with a lot. Go Google grounding techniques. Um, and you'll find pages and pages okay. of, of things to do. And try some different hats on. See what you like. If you don't like it, throw it out and try something else. Um, I'm a big fan of carrying around a card with your favorite grounding exercises on it. Because when you get in that intense moment, you're probably not thinking really well. So pull out the card. Oh, yeah, counting ceiling tiles works really well for me. I'm going to give that a try. <laughs> right. You can add that to your card. No, I'm just kidding. If it doesn't work for you, you don't need to add it to your card. But ceiling tiles does work for me, I know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I know at my dad's old office. My dad's passed away now, but at my dad's old office, I know that there were 132 ceiling tiles. Nice. And I just remember that because I used to have to count them a lot when I was trying to stay present with my dad and, and big emotions and not not get distracted, or not not distracted, but not get uh, overwhelmed yeah. by what was going on. Yeah, and and so those are, those are some things on your own you can start doing. And, and like with so many things in recovery, again, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about this is something that you're gonna do by yourself, but you're not gonna do it alone. Um, you've gotta get an ability to check in with your emotions and to be able to start um, modulating those emotions by yourself, mm -hmm. but you're not going to work through what those emotions mean all by yourself. So that's where connecting with people, telling your story, getting help from your sponsor, your therapist, your support group is really important. Yeah. So when you talk about like connecting with another person, like we do our best grounding in the presence of another person, can you give me a couple examples of what that would look like in a healthy way and maybe what that wouldn't be healthy? Like what connection wouldn't be healthy in that moment? Yeah. Um, so I think of, this is something I'm working on with my six-year-old. He's a little bit anxious. Um, he is recognizing that he's got emotions that are bigger than him right now. One of the things that we do together, we'll sit across from each other and I'll say, you just follow my breath and I'll breathe really deep and I'll breathe out and I'll exaggerate it so he can see that and he'll get in sync with my breathing. So that syncing up with somebody else in a calming way can be a really healthy way. I think getting out into nature doing some recreation together, like walking with a friend, um, hiking, going to play basketball, volleyball, um, that kind of stuff. Just that movement and that syncing up together with another person who's calming can be really healthy. Um, one of the, the ways that I'd see that not going well, if you're um, dealing with intense emotions and you go to somebody and you know that that person is gonna be really good to gripe to and they're not gonna hold you accountable for taking other people's inventories, um, or they're not going to call you out when you're playing the victim card heavy. Um, that can actually install and perpetuate some of those thoughts that get in our way from being emotionally healthy and healing. So you, you really have to kind of be able to evaluate well what actually helps me versus what feels good. Um, hmm. You know, I think of eating well. Um, what helps me in eating well doesn't always taste good. <laughs> when I think about exercise, this is my whole battle with exercise. Nothing that helps me feels good. 
Um, <laughs> right, yes. So you, you have to really be able to evaluate, does this help me or am I doing it because it just feels good? There's a big difference. And again, in, in the moment, getting a little bit of that, hey, this feels good, that can be enough distraction to break, but some of the long-term work that we're doing is not just, can I distract myself all the time? It's, I'm distracting for a purpose. It's to get some breathing room so that I can come back to this with fresh eyes, with less intense emotion, and I can really start thinking my way and, and actually feeling my way through this. Mm-hmm. So as a, like, I have a lot of people that come to me with big emotions, right? So, you know, and I'm sure that all of us do as women, men, you know, we have children, spouses, all sorts of people that come to our, us in our lives with big emotions. What's the best thing, what's the, one of the things that I can do to be supportive in that moment and not, you know, not be the one that they gripe to, not do yeah. what feels good, you know, what, what are some things that I can do as well? Yeah, I, I think the biggest key there um, in, in being a support person with someone with strong emotions is validation. Um, validation doesn't mean you're right. Validation doesn't mean, gosh, that's gospel truth. What validation means is I can see what you're feeling and that's a legitimate feeling. Um, even when our feelings are bra- based on our crazy thinking, we're still feeling it, so it's real. Um, so I think being able to say, gosh, I can see that you're upset. I can see that you're sad. I can see that you're really angry. I get it. Um, I would be too. I think that can be a really good place to start. Um, I think also being someone who can listen is important, and I think listening is a lot more than just hearing a lot of words coming at you. I think in real listening, we're phrasing back. So wait a minute, by that did you mean, or it sounds like you're saying to me, um, that can be part of that um, regulating emotion process is as, as someone comes to you with real intense emotions and they kind of paint all over the canvas, you hold the canvas back up and say, this is what it looks like as you're painting. Um, This is the picture that I'm seeing. Is that what you intended or is that what's going on for you? Um, I think another way is to have boundaries. Um, Just real real simple. If the emotions of somebody else are really touching your story and activating your story, it's okay to say, you know, my stuff is up to right now. I may not be a real grounding person for you now. Um, Can we come back to this? I'm going to need some help. Your emotions brought up strong things for me as a therapist. That happens to me quite often. Um, There will be times where a client is sharing things with me and I'll have an emotional reaction and that's okay, I'll acknowledge it. Um, And I'll I'll state that it's there, I won't try to run from it. And then I'll get committed to working on what that reaction was for me and understanding that reaction. Um, So much of what we're doing is support people um, for folks in recovery is we're modeling some, some healthy behavior Um, And so I think as a sponsor, as a support person, um, being able to show your sponsees and the people you're supporting that you do have emotions. Um, We're we're not like the Wizard of Oz where we hide behind this curtain and spout (laughs) wisdom. We're real people and we're showing them what it means to be a real person. Mm -hmm. Those are great ideas. Thank you. So one of the techniques that we use when we work through this is grounding. And we can be grounding for people that come to us Mm -hmm. with big emotions, right? So after we feel grounded or we're working through that, we've distracted ourselves from the intensity, how do we come back? What do we, what do, we do next? Uh, so longer term, I think it's really about understanding why that emotion came up for you and why it came up in the way that it did. Most of our big, big emotions are not just in response to that situation. Um, like for me, when I hear a door slam, um, I, I remember my, um, 
mom and dad yelling through the house, don't slam my doors when the door <laughs> would slam. Um, and for me, it's not that. That's my door. Don't slam it. It's that there were so many doors slammed in my house and it didn't feel good. So when one of my kids slams a door, even if you know they're running the house having fun or when they're angry, um, I have a big emotional reaction to that. And it's not just because it's my door. It's because I'm going back to that place of um, what it was like to, to grow up in an environment that sometimes felt really conflict-laden and really anxiety-laden. So, so next, um, it's important to start understanding the storyline so that you can start having some compassion for yourself. I think that there's three main things that bring big emotions out of our story and, and bring the emotions that come and keep coming, that keep coming back. There's the things that were and shouldn't have been. Um, mm. So, you know, that's abuse, that's neglect, that's... Um, you know, that's the things that happen that should never happen to somebody. Uh, and I use the should word, but we'll use it <laughs> It's here. okay. No, I, there, there are some things that should never happen. Yeah. Abuse, you know, trauma, um, like, you know, all, there are some things that should never happen. I'm okay with that one. And I think sometimes that's really hard to accept for ourselves, that there are things that happen in our life that just were not okay no matter how you slice it. Mm-hmm. It damaged, it hurt, it wounded, it scarred. Um, the next category are the things that were and weren't enough. That's really where we see neglect. You know, I, you might say I had parents, but I didn't have the kind of parents that I went to when I was scared. They put food on the table. They kept me in clothes. Um, but when it came to questions about emotions, when it came to questions about sex, when it came to questions about understanding me, I didn't have those. Um, so the were and weren't enough are things that we grieve. They're things that we mourn. And the things that weren't and should have been. Um, like I, I think it's an honest tragedy when a kid doesn't have the experience of having a best friend. Um, I, I think kids are wired. Well, we're all wired to connect. Kids do their best. Renee Brown. We're all yeah. wired to connect. Yeah. Exactly. Kids, kids really do their best, and you can see this in kids, especially when they have a playmate, when they have somebody that they can count on, and they know that they matter to. And that doesn't happen for some people, or that's so inconsistent for some people. Um, so we really have to start working through the storylines. I think the 12-step process is actually a really great way to work through your storylines. In step one, you're looking at some of the manageability throughout your life. Um, and, and through different steps, you're really getting in tune with what are the different parts of my grief and where has the grief been stuck. Um, in adult children of alcoholics, in step five, they actually talk about before you give a step five, you really need to understand what grief is and what your grief has looked like as a result of the things that you went over in step four. Um, and then in, in sharing your step five with God, yourself, and another trusted individual, you're really actually doing the grieving process. Mm-hmm. You're talking about your story. You're feeling the emotions. Um, it's really important that we don't attempt to do that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, support from other people is so, so important. Like you mentioned, um, you can really gloss over some parts of your story without realizing here's the impact. And people can not only help draw your attention back to it, but they can help you hold that emotion mm-hmm. and they can help you feel safe in doing that. Yeah. I liked what you said about like the adult adult children of alcoholics. I have been attending that recently. It's great. Yeah, I know. It's been really great actually. I love their perspective on the twelve steps, but especially like you said in step five and just understanding grief. I think that my personal um, understanding of grief, I, I felt like I did some of that in working the 12 steps through um, my S fellowship, but also I think my personal understanding of grief has changed dra- dramatically since I've 
been looking at that from that perspective. And those three story ideas, things that were and shouldn't have been, things that were and weren't enough, things that weren't and should have been in our lives. I feel like I never looked, when I, when I did my step one, you know, I never really looked at those ideas um, from my past. It was all focused on my own personal behavior, mm-hmm. right? Which we need to do as addicts. I don't Absolutely. have a problem with that. But second time around, looking at it from a different perspective, this has helped me gain so much insight into my own emotions, why I feel things, like you said, reacting to much bigger situations than just what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time my sponsor called me out on that. I was an email exchange with someone. And I sent the email and was like, I am so pissed at this person. I can't believe that they, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and she was like, Amy, you're responding to years, mm-hmm. years of, you know, craziness with this person and not this email. This email's benign. She's like, there is nothing in this email that should evoke that kind of response. Yeah. That was eye-opening for me. You know, just that idea that my emotions are not just in the moment. I mean, they're years mm-hmm. of, of what should could would have been if i you know wanted it to be and i think when we really start to realize the scope that our emotions come from there's a lot of room for Mm self-compassion when you can see like you know things were terrible for me or things were overwhelming for me as a kid i never developed this ability to regulate myself instead of going to the and you're stupid for not being able to do it um i think we much more naturally go to why would you know how to do it you, you, you didn't have a chance and you can help yourself slow down enough and others can help you slow down enough to really go back and in adult children of alcoholics they talk a lot about reparenting the inner child and you really slow down and you spend some time with those really hurt parts of you mm-hmm. instead of rushing past it like you have your whole life mm-hmm. um, I, I will say something here about a long-term strategy with emotions and it needs to be a long-term strategy because can't stress this enough you won't take care of it you won't make it go away um, I think medication serves a purpose Um, and not just medication, but there are a lot of different therapies and interventions out there that get focused on holding the emotion. Um, I'll talk from my personal experience, um, being able to be accurately assessed um, and, and given medications for my moods at a time in my life provided some breathing room that really helped me to slow down enough so that I could learn what I needed to learn to be healthy. Um, so if, if you're working on the intense emotions and you're doing what you need to do and you're still not feeling relief, get some trained help outside of yourself. Go talk to your doctor. Go talk to a psychiatrist. Um, go talk to a yoga practitioner. There are great um, trauma-informed yoga practitioners out there that can help you to do some of that, get into the body, mm-hmm. experience the emotion. There are a lot of options out there, and I think there's no shame in it. Um, yeah. That's one of the myths about emotion is that if I can't handle my emotions, that I'm not a, I'm not a good person. I'm not okay. That that's my that's my like that's my core fundamental flawed belief about myself, is that I because I can't handle my emotions. I'm not enough. I'm broken. I that that was one of the things I've really had to work on. Is just that, you know, my I didn't know that emotions could be bigger than me or different mm-hmm. things like that. And I felt like because I couldn't handle my own emotions, then how could I handle anybody else? How could I talk to anybody else? And and so. I must be broken. I, I think that's one of the great things about emotions is they are bigger than us. You know, think of a time where you've been in a really joyful, happy situation and you felt like your face was going to rip apart because you were smiling <laughs> so big. 
Um, like I think of concerts that I've been to or I think of times that I've been with friends. It's been so fun. I'm so glad that emotion was so much bigger than me. Um, but in those times where we're experiencing our grief or our heartache or our shame and it's bigger than us, it's like, no, I don't want this. And that's where a lot of times we make the decision. It's not a conscious decision, but we turn off the emotional spigot thinking I'm going to turn off all the bad emotions and just experience the good ones. The problem is there's not two on-off switches for emotions. There's just one. Um, and so in experiencing our emotions and living with them, we live with some risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I go back to Marshall Linehan's quote, acceptance is the only way out of hell. If we can accept that emotions are bigger than us, that they come and go, that there's the emotions that build us up and there's the emotions that crash us, we can open ourselves to those waves of the sea that, that come and go and we can stop to a degree fighting what we're feeling and instead accept it. Mm-hmm. We can roll with it and we can learn from it. We can get help with it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing, for being here, for being willing to to share your experiences as well no as the things that you've done. No problem. What any other closing thoughts for us? I'd, I'd like to give one more resource that yeah, I have absolutely. found great in dealing with emotions. Back to some of the adult children of alcoholic stuff. Um, most all adult children and I think most addicts grew up in homes where the rule was don't talk, don't see, don't feel. And that's some of the rules that we take into adulthood around our emotions that make it hard to grapple with them. Mm-hmm. There's an exercise, it's in step four of a, adult children of alcoholics that is a an emotional um, validating exercise. So once a day you write out three sentences that take this format. I feel blank when blank because blank. And you write out three of those sentences once a day. Do it for two weeks. Uh, what that starts to do is you get to validate your emotions. And you'll take in positive emotions, negative emotions, neutral emotions, and you're getting to say, I saw this, so I get to feel this, so I get to talk about this. And you're really taking the narrative of your emotions back from your addiction, from your trauma, and you're able to say, these are mine and I accept them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, in the last episode, we talked about that worksheet with the faces. This is a really great one to pair with the faces. When I do this, I sit down and I look at the faces and I say, what faces was I <laughs> yesterday or what faces am I this morning? Yeah. And I'll pick three and I'll write about it. Um, and that's been a really great way to just start practicing some acceptance of emotion. Yeah, awesome. I actually created a worksheet for you guys to be able to use this exercise for the next two weeks. So it's, I feel blank when blank because blank and so i'm that's available on the website you'll be able to get on i'm committing to do this for the next two weeks i'll post mine online on the website so you can see what i'm feeling and i encourage you to do the same so that we can kind of start really working through these emotions and be able to feel them first of all and then be able to decide what we want to do with them and use them in our lives in positive constructive ways so i'm excited about that Awesome. I'm excited yeah. about that too. I'm going to re-up my commitment to that and keep my alarm every day at 11.50 to do my emotions exercise. Okay, deal. And so that's on the website. You can get that. You can get both uh, John's worksheet about uh, the half the faces and then this one to go along with it. Thanks again. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. So glad to have you. As always, ladies, I hope you remember that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel in this very moment, no matter how big the emotions are that are causing problems for you, you are worth recovery, 100% worth it. I know that. Keep up the fight. 
Don't forget, you can support Worth Recovery by being a Worth Warrior. If this podcast has helped you even a little bit, if you think it's worth 50 cents, get online and join the movement. All the details are on the website, worthrecovery.com. Remember, I think about you, I pray for you, I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.